Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. is episode 226 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I talk to Hugh Monaghan of Stellar Jockeys about their real-time tactical game, Brigador. But before we delve into that, let's look at what else is under the Cane and Rinse umbrella. On Mondays, we have Cane and Rinse, which this week focuses on Final Fantasy IX. Then, we have Sound of Play on Wednesdays, where music of video games is celebrated. Do check that out on Wednesdays and on Thursdays. We have two people called Ryan recording a podcast called Playwright in which they try to make games from the ideas sent to them from their listeners. It's most excellent. Highly recommend it. And of course on Fridays is the Sausage Factory which you're listening to right now. So yay! Go you. Thanks for doing that. If you want to find out more about what Cane and Rince get up to you can go to canerince.com and you can find archives of all the podcasts I've just mentioned above, as well as additional blogs, reviews, previews, and an active forum. So yeah, do pop along to canerince.com. We also have a Twitch stream. You can just look up canerince, uh, all one word. You go to twitch.tv forward slash canerince, and you find our stream there. And uh, at the moment, we've got two regular shows on Thursdays. There's myself and Darren Gargett where we sail the seven seas, well not seven seas, the Caribbean, fictional Caribbean, in a Sea of Thieves, trying to look for content. And then on Thursday, oh, sorry, on Sundays, we have me just streaming a random game. Just from a random platform, just randomly. For an hour or so, which is fun. And if you want to chuck us some coin for all the efforts that we at Cane and Rinse do for you, producing all this content then please feel free to do so by going to Patreon. You can actually subscribe to us for $1 a month. And if you do that, one US dollar a month. And if you send us that, just one US dollar a month, you get extra content, you get extended editions of Cane and Rinse, as well as exclusive podcasts, which are behind that particular paywall. Now, if you prefer just to chuck us a one-off payment, you have issues with Patreon, we get you. And there's also a means for which you can send us some money, a one-off payment, just like a tip, if you like, using PayPal as well. But enough of that. Let's go on to the main feature. Please, take it away past me. Hugh. Hello. Who are you, and what do you do? I am a game designer and studio manager for Stellar Jockeys. Uh, I've been making games... 
professionally since uh, about 2011 and plenty of tinkering before that. Uh, we started Stellar Jockeys in 2011. It's my brother and I and now uh, our friend Carl Parkinings and Benjamin Glover. So the four of us make the uh, merry, merry troop making uh, first Brigador and now uh, working on a, a follow-up. Indeed, which we'll delve into later. Yes. But before we do that, I need to find out a little bit more about your history, sir, because second question... They do get difficult, more difficult as we carry on, by the way. <laughs> uh, as like all video games, you know, it ramps up. Uh, there's a mini boss in the middle. That's great. Uh, how did you start making flashy, lighty video games? Uh, go back as far as you like. Like, I was a fetus. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of it is my brother's fault. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Jack Monaghan is, is, is one of my older brothers. Uh, he's five year distance between the, between the two of us, five year gap. Uh, and he uh, always had that tinkering gene when it came to video games. He was an early member of Polycount, uh, very much into early Doom wads and Quake. He had uh, a custom model for um, he did a custom model for Quake Three called Boomer. Uh, and that was, I mean, this is all back, you know, late '90s, early 2000s, and. With the five-year lag behind, it was because he kind of opened up a lot of that stuff for me. Like I was pretty much some of my earliest creative memories are tinkering with Doom and Hexen, uh, and later with StarCraft. So I was always picking apart these in the same way that he was. And then fast forward, we both studied industrial design in college and both realized that we would much rather do it making video games than doing, you know, designing toasters and uh, various practical house goods. Now, there's anything wrong with that. It just wasn't wasn't quite our, our cup of tea. Um, and so he worked on Darkest of Days as the lead level designer um, and also did a lot of concept art for it. And while I was in college, I would pop in. I would, I would spend my uh, spring and fall breaks doing testing for them just to kind of get my, uh, get my feet wet. Um, and then some point after I had graduated and he had, you know, shipped that game, we were just sort of working independently on our own. We, re- we each were working on our own projects and talking with each other a lot and talking, you know, well, here's what I'm thinking about this. How would you solve this, etc. And then at some point after I had started the company to do it on my own, um, around the end of 2012, we sat down and just realized, like, this is this is ridiculous that we're both working on separate projects. And so, we had this long five-hour discussion of whether we would work with the project that he had been working on or the one that I had been working on. Um, and what we ended up doing is what would become Brigador was the kernels of what I had been making, but then reinterpreted through a lot of. Jack's greater experience and his uh, also greater artistic talent. Uh, originally, it was going to be a two D game, um, but he he had a a, a great uh, you know portfolio of three D work that he had been doing. And even though Brigador is a, a isometric two D game, all of the in game assets are sourced from you know three D models that are baked down to two D sprites. So it's very much in the same style as as uh, you know Command and Conquer games and um, and Starcraft. 
and it and it's helped lend this very particular look and aesthetic to, uh, to the game, and that's that's all Jack. Oh no, it kind of like reminds me of Mech Commander as well, but you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I mean, I was I, I'm a huge fan of those games, so yeah. it was, it was yeah. leading. Yeah, it's it's um, Crusader kind of a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, Crusader was the same rendering technique. Well, there you go. Um, I'm of that age. I'm afraid. I must mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, I'm very much aware. I played, I played um, Desert Strike, of course, uh, which is the great uh, flying tank simulator <laughs> simulation, oh. um, and uh, similar level of difficulty in that game as it is the Brigador. Well done, <laughs> because <laughs> um, and uh, it doesn't tell you anything. I love about that game. It's like let's go. It hasn't even got a HUD. Just go, go on, off right. you go. If you want a HUD, just press a button and you can look down and see your panel. Otherwise, just blow things up if you can. Oh no, wait, you run out of fuel. Sad. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, I, there, there was there was a, an early draft where we were talking about, um, you know, fuel supplies and things like that. There was there there was a draft of of Brigador that was even more involved than the game already is. Wow. Yeah. Crunchy, I believe they call it. Crunchy yeah. games. We leave that to Paradox, shall we? Anyway, because mm. <laughs> uh, there's limits, you know, some people. But, yeah, I, mean, I remember playing it on the Amiga, because, again, British. And, uh, hey, you know, I just like playing it on the Amiga. And um, But, yeah, it's it's a great inspiration to be drawing from, because it, it, we just forgot them, didn't we? We just walked away. Well, well that's... So that's that's kind of a funny thing is that I mean that's a case of a genuine case of parallel development where I, I'm sure I had encountered Desert Strike at some point prior to Brigadier's development, but I wasn't. It wasn't a game I was actively aware of. Like no, we weren't. No. Um, the the main inspiration point for what we had been building with Brigador was more uh, Crusader and Syndicate. Mm, yeah, but at more of a a, a mech level uh, or you know mech scale. Yeah. Uh, and so that that was one of the interesting pleasures of, of after, you know, we had released the announced trailer and also just as, as more and more people played the game, there was this whole bevy of games that we had either forgotten about or had never even heard of that people were like, oh, you know, clearly you base this on Future Cop LAPD. And I was like, I have never played that game and I'm hearing about it for the first time. So this <laughs> is, uh, it, it was a, a genuine um uh, it was a genuine pleasure to to get that. Um, a, it's it's nice to see how you can make a game that can resonate for people in ways that you hadn't even anticipated. And B, because it it broadened our own horizons as far as you know getting exposed to these similar style games and seeing what they did. And and it's interesting to see how you know in many cases we were dealing with the same problems and ended up with arriving to the same or very similar conclusions. Mm. Yeah, some game design elements certainly lead themselves in a certain environment or certain interface. They will lead themselves to a natural uh, solution to, like, yes. how do you do ranged combat or ranged fire? I mean, it's it, and that's something we'll, we'll talk about later. But it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting solutions that each game, each solu- each game has a has its own way of dealing with. And but there was a period, there's a window of time in the early nineties. Uh, until maybe the late nineties, where they went, oh, let's just make a lot of these three D isometric games that run really smoothly, and there's lots of explosions and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And that went on for a little bit, and then, and then 
something happened. I think it was the 3D graphics card suddenly kicked in and went, no, let's do it like this instead. And then it all went away. Um, for, for good or ill, I'm not entirely sure. <coughs> but there it is. Um, so, yeah, it's a great auspicious start. I mean, I love the fact that you're, you're working with your, your sibling, uh, one of your siblings. Um, uh, speaking of one who has three as, as well, um, couldn't imagine working with him. But anyway, <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> um, as a creative force that is Stellar Jockeys, <clears throat> what do you believe is your biggest influence? Or influences? Well, are, we, are we talking just at large or yeah, specifically within games? It's a rather nebulous question, I must admit. Mm, mm-hmm. And I, I've had to reframe it over and over again over the years of the show. But really, it's just, you've created something. Obviously, you've been uh, yeah, I'm, I'm only trying to narrow it down because otherwise you'll this will be a five-hour podcast. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really sort of pitching it on the idea of you've created something. You've obviously been sort of inspired by something or influenced by something or some things, what do you think is the greatest thing or the biggest thing that you anchor yourself around more than anything? I'm going to take a long draw of my coffee. And, and, and you can't see it, but I'm making a very pensive, educated look on my face mm. uh, as I think about this one. I did say it got more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Kind of buried the lead on that one. Uh, well, yeah, and that's that's also because you always, as a designer especially, you always want to acquit yourself well with these sort of, you know, creative uh, etymology questions. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I, I, my brother and I share a lot personally. Um, I, I can't speak entirely for the other members of the team. I know just Carl did a lot of the writing, um, as did a, we have a book by a guy named Brad Buck, Brad Buckmaster, who um, he just drew on his own personal experiences serving in the in the infantry, um, and so that's that that's its whole other bag. So I, I can only confidently speak for myself, but um, you know, there, there's there's the usual bevy of of great science fiction. Uh, you know, the there's. I'm sure I can list a bunch of artists and designers that have been listed by pretty much every other developer on the show. Um, and that, that was certainly a, a, a major, those were all major factors. Um, but the, I, I, I think one of my personal drives more than anything is, is a, uh, a kind of, ethos i've found across certain pieces of media where it's a um a rigorousness and uh a unity of vision where where whatever the creative piece is it is all of a of a singular piece so to, to kind of describe that a little more um so for example uh, a huge impact on me was was watching the um, uh, the background scenes for the making of the Lord of the Rings. Um, there's a lot of a lot of cool stuff there, yeah. but specifically the fact um, you had uh, what was it Alan uh, Alan Ho How? Uh, 
I'm blanking the, the the two artists, the two illustrators who had been drawing uh, drawing out the world of Tolkien for for over a decade when uh, Peter Jackson finally brought them up, and then they they worked with Weta and to to do every single piece, anything that was produced for those films were so well wrought within this understanding of who is wearing it, where did these things come from, what is the the place in the world in which in which these exist. Like um, uh, Strider's uh, longsword has a uh, an additional dagger sheath on the longsword, uh, along along the longsword scabbard. Uh, that's a uh, it's a skinning knife. And it was it was this this a uh, detail that that no one would see if you if it weren't pointed out. But and and the only scene in which it's used was actually a scene that was cut uh, for the film. But you can see it in the extended edition where he you know he's he's got a deer carcass and he's you know uh, he's skinning it. Um, but just the, this this uh, rigorousness of thinking like they could they have made Lord of the Rings and had it sold have it you know sell ridiculously low without that same rigor sure but clearly it was a labor of love for a lot of the people involved and at the same time it's it's especially when you're working from such rich material there's the desire to to build it all up together so that no matter where you look no matter what what part of this creative piece you examine there is this this continuity with everything else and 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 when you have small details that are given us, you know, an almost similar weight of importance, that I think has a cumulative effect of creating uh, a world in which uh, not only is much more believable, but also I, th I think can, uh, by virtue of making those considerations, you're as a designer, you're sort of forced to render the world in a much more authentic manner. Um, so, so yeah, like Lord of the Rings was a big one. Uh, I mean, Star Wars in terms of the way that they would, would work through these sets and make them feel very lived in. Um, I know for Alien, they came up, they did a modified version of their own typography for the ships. They came up with their own, uh, icon sets. Uh, the, the actual ship. Uh, the Nostromo, parts of the cockpit uh, and parts of the ship were actually salvaged B-17 interiors because um, they, they just realized that the amount of work it would take to fake it would be so intensive for the, the kind of the level of, of detail and greeble that they were going for that they just got the real thing and, and used those as a, as a form around which to build a lot of these other things. Yeah, because um, most of it's in darkness anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, no one's going to mind if it's just like it happens to a seat in a certain elevation over a certain yeah. set of controls. I mean, you know, it's uh, the, the the point of it was was darkness and uh, lumin uh, limited uh, uh, illumination or luminance around, uh, apart from certain other parts of the ship. Um, right, but, but very, yeah. Well, I was about to say, even though you can't see much of that detail, yeah. the fact you know it's it's there, and it yeah. and it all you know taken as a whole. That's that's what would, I just the, yeah. the more I learned as I got older and, and understood the the lengths that people went to 
to create these these various things, you know, these various uh, pieces that I that are very impactful for me uh, as a developing designer. Um, I, I realized that 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 rigor and follow through was something that I that was deeply appealing to me. And and even though it's a you know it's a pain in the ass, uh, you know, if it's it is not conducive to to short development cycles. Um, but at the same time, it, it can give you such a strong foundation so that when you do kind of reach out to, to, to experiment or to, to expand what you've been building, um, you, like you, you have this, this base there to, to build from. Hmm. It's a, it's a fantastic thing to be drawn from the, the attention to detail. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that because, that then builds from that the, the the overlying surface, which most people see initially, is rooted or has a foundation. So it's a strong foundation to it. That even scraping away, there's yet more to see, more to break down, and more to see. And mm. that's definitely uh, demonstrated in Brigador, which is uh, why it's a phenomenal game. So yeah, that's an excellent answer. Thank you, thank you for that. Next question. Does get harder, trust me. This one is difficult to answer because you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. <clears throat> what developer do you most admire in the industry and why? <laughs> what developer do you what? Admire in the industry and why? Developer do I most admire? Mm, who do you say, keep on doing the thing you do? Yay. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Told you, this gets worse and worse. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because you probably know a lot, you see. So. I, I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Um, probably Josh Sawyer. Okay. Uh, so he's the he was the lead on Pillars of Eternity. Right. Uh, he's a, a game designer, so of course they're cut from 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 my own, or cut from the same cloth. Uh. I'm sure there are great programmers and writers and the people from other and you know aspects of the games industry who are um, as admirable. But I'm going to be selfish and pick a designer. Um, yeah, it's 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 because I think he's an exemplar of that same level of rigor that I find so admirable. Um, I mean, the Pillars of Eternity. I mean, New Vegas was great, um, and. It's it's a testament to how scrupulous he is, in that uh, Sawyer released his own mod for his own game that was a variant that was more hardcore and kind of put in a lot of his own proclivities that didn't necessarily fit for the the broader audience that they were going for for New Vegas. Um, and he, he didn't have to do that at all, but he had that. There was this creative desire, and he followed through on it. And like with Pillars of Eternity, I mean, they they created a new a new fantasy world. That's and and of course he's he's part of a larger group who's who's building this out. But um, he he helped shepherd both uh, a creative world as well as a I, I think one of the finest um, CRPG setups for uh you know real-time tactics style game um i'm a tremendous fan of pillars and pillars too and i i think that uh i i would say he's he's one of the most articulate designers functioning in the industry right now 
and I, I have the good fortune. If if he listens to this, of course he'll give me some shit for this because we we've we've chatted occasionally at at, uh, at conferences. But um, yeah, I, I I think he's he's the thank thankfully I I think he's he's got a couple more several more games in him, so uh, we get to see him keep going. Excellent. Well, again, wonderful answer. You good at this? Well done. Ah, <laughs> cheated. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> All right. So, last question of the first half. See? Brace yourself. This <laughs> one I have to legally ask, because um, this podcast is about video games, therefore I have to ask it. Mm. What are you playing right now? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm actually not playing anything, because I gave games up for Lent. So, I've been on a dry spell. Oh, really? <laughs> for the last month and a half. Yeah. Okay, what, what were you doing before or after? Were you, okay, that's a good question. What were you doing? Were you playing before? Yeah. And then what are you planning to dive into? Um, so on the, uh, so, so for me being a a very social creature, um, one of the main ways I keep up with friends is by playing video games with them. Um, both, well, so D and D, but also, uh, just any kind of multiplayer game. Um, and I, I'm very, like, personally, I like very agonistic style games like i i prefer games that that involve a, a great deal of of player mastery um rather than time investment um and i i understand why mmos exist in the way that they do uh i just know that it's not for me especially when getting older and also with all the work that i do in games um uh, I I heavily favor games where it is you know you, there's there's not a, a a limiter on on how you can progress right so to actually answer your question I was playing a lot of uh, I was playing Bloodborne I hadn't I hadn't actually finished it um, so I was playing through Bloodborne and then Apex came out oh yeah and uh, I had some buddies and I we we really drilled down on that game uh, for a couple weeks. And then, um, let me look at my, my Steam. Uh, I'm still still piddling around with Pillars too, because uh, there's just there's there's enough of a variation in what you can do in that game. Uh, and that. Yeah, like that's that's pretty much been my everything else. Yeah. Everything else is, I'll play something very briefly, right? Yeah. To you know, either researching or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the I you you just missed me because I uh, my big regular one my like my my bread and butter game for for about the last year and a half was was Battle Brothers. That was when I needed to just sit down and play, blow off some steam, uh, just put a good hour or two into that uh and that's a not familiar with that one oh i i think given your your background that would be a great um that'll that'll be a treat for you it's a turn-based hex-based tactics game with it's uh persistent so it's it's in the like ex-commy roguelikey type wheelhouse but it's medieval uh low fantasy um and it's just it's it's delightfully grim. It's it's grim in a way that only Europeans can pull off. 
<laughs> I don't have to take that. No, you're right. Yeah, we'll get that. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I'm still European. Sorry, topics. Anyway. I couldn't tell. <laughs> um, yeah, Brexit. Anyway, um, so that anything you're planning to dive into after Lent? Mm. Uh, I mean, given my uh, affection for the, the Souls games, um, you know, Sekiro is, is naturally yeah. going to be one I'm going to yeah. touch on. Um, that That's where it's like I need... The way I like to play those games is to just block out a very large chunk of time and just burn hard on it. Like, I, I don't... I, I hate... With a game like that, it's very difficult to really get into it if you're only plinking away like an hour hour at a time over a long period. Um, also because I, that way I can't get really angry at a fight and then play way too long trying to finish it. Uh, I've, my, my, my personal, um, just, just a part of my personality is that I, uh, when, when I encounter something like that, where it's like, uh, I'm getting skill blocked or I just can't, there's, there's some, some kind of thing I can't quite figure out rather than be a sane person and just sleep on it. Um, what I'll, I'll always end up doing is just grind against it until I finally figure it out. Uh, and, 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 and you know what? Yeah. Unhealthy, but at yeah. the same time, I, I think all that same impulse has been something that's actually served me really well as a game developer because right. that like the dog that bites and then won't let go, even though he's trying to wrestle an elephant. Um, it's just like once, once I get my teeth in, you know, I'm, I'm either bringing this thing down or I'm going to die trying. Uh, and so, yeah. So, so Sekiro was the big one. Um, that's, that's the only one that's actually really on my radar. Right. Uh, as far as what's, what's coming up. Yeah, we got a bit of a lull, just a little bit, but it'll. Pick hey, up that's again. that's fine with me. Yeah, I am. Oh, so... <laughs> very good. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. That's a good one to to go for, especially after after uh, giving up games for so long. <laughs> How a game developer can do that, and uh, like, so you're not playing the game you're making. No, can't can't do that. No. Well, well, that's, I mean, <laughs> that's a big asterisk, right? Is yeah. with five. <laughs> uh you know doing gameplay testing or something yeah, be we, we've been doing a lot of writing lately so that that's go. that's made it um you know less of a burden anyway all right well good answers um let's move on to the second half where we delve deep into brigador
Alrighty. So, first question of the second part. No, this is your question. It's not really a question, it's a request. Please tell us, what is Brigador? If I had the answer to that, I would be... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I do this is because in order for us to delve into the detail, we need to know what right. it is. Otherwise, the audience is the same. I have no idea what you're talking about. So let's just describe, best as we can, what we think Brigador is in words. So Brigador is a... It's an, a real-time tactical combat game. Uh, and an isometric camera with uh, an fully destructible environments and and an emphasis on uh, player moment to moment decision making. So on any given level, the the objectives are fairly simple in Brigador. Uh, it's kill this guy, blow this thing up, or kill everybody. And so when you have uh, a broad swath of, of tanks, hovercraft, mechs to pick from, as well as a fully destructible environment, that gives you uh, a degree of leeway in how you want to go about completing that. The So the the... the, the Gaming verbs of Brigador are fairly narrow. It's, you know, blow stuff up, blow people up, uh, pick what you're going to use to blow people up. Um, but within within that very narrow set, it, it, it's a very rich uh, tactical experience. Um, yeah. But it's a Kool-Aid Man simulator. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, I did it. <laughs> Sorry, you started it. Yeah. Um, and even I, as a British person, understand reference. So there you go. This is across the Atlantic. Um, we don't have cool idea anyway. <laughs> so you did a reasonable good job, I think. It is an isometric battle simulator type thing where you control one unit rather than many, and you directly control it by um, using mouse and keyboard or indeed a controller, depends on your own preference. And. Uh, it's like I said, it's very extremely destructible. The scenery, everything is you could blow it up, but also it's a very tactical game. Very tactical game. Whether you intended to build that, we will find out, but that's what I found it to be. The first thing that struck me, and this is the first design question, was quite interesting and in how you realized that these mechs and tanks have an elevation to them. The Z-axis, if you will, is recognised in Brigador. It's not just a 2D plane having to be an isometric field. In other words, you have an elevation of fire. Was this always there? And why is it there? It was not. And that, I think, is one of the better cases uh, illustrated in Brigador of, of how our understanding of the game and the game world evolved over the course of development. So originally, um, Brigador was a top-down 2D game, and it was much more of a uh, persistent RTS-like game. And originally, rather than 
a more conventional Western military aesthetic of, you know, tanks and mechs. Um, it was <laughs> these giant walking oil rigs uh, that were huge battle platforms. And it was more akin to something like uh, Deserts of Karak, actually, where y it was top down. You had a huge, uh, uh, you know, walking fortress. And then you could deploy units and build turrets and things on it. And one of the things we realized was, you know, the original version was just that um, because these giant things needed to be able to fire over the slave units. Um, and we wanted terrain and stuff. And then, well, or is there elevation there? Uh, back when it was still 2D, it was, we basically just did a cheat. Um, and around that same time was when Jack came on board. And we had a very long series of discussions and completely rejiggered what Brigador was going to be. And that was when the, the last of the, when the, when the RTS trappings started moving away towards more of a uh, real-time action-style game. Um, the irony, of course, is that we, we moved away from RTS because the thinking was, this game is too big. Uh, you know, there's going to be persistence and, like, unit building. And let's, let's simplify it down. And you're just driving around a thing, and you blow some stuff up. And maybe you've got, you know, automatic AI helpers who run around with you. Um, fast forward a couple years through continuous development, we had switched to the isometric camera, uh, and almost immediately on the pivot to isometric, we realized that, um, just having a bullet tracing along the ground wasn't going to cut it, um, or, you know, choosing a direction because we were having such a, such a great difference in elevation both between the vehicles and between the assets uh the that was when the the depth-based aiming uh was being worked on as well as the z-axis um to get to do a little technical digression brigador the brigador engine which is scratch made uh uses box 2d which is a a <laughs> true to the name a 2d physics engine um and we basically used our engine to staple on the Z-axis. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so there's there's some weird edge cases that can happen in the game where yeah. it becomes apparent that that was a very um, kind of ad hoc solution. Um, but the, the the process of working through all of that, uh, it was just kind of a, a natural iteration um, for, for adding the Z-axis. And then once we added it, all of a sudden, there were all of these other aspects that you, you became aware of. So, you know, Z-axis and depth-based aiming, oh, we can shoot over stuff now. Well, um, having a greater height variation between units suddenly becomes way more interesting. Uh, and also, you have a, a greater difference in the dynamics between having a very low-profile tank versus a very tall mech, um, and then being able to like crouch a mech to change some of these profiles or to hide, to uh, 
you know, that was also when we figured out that we needed penetration values for both environment and for ballistics, because it was really weird to see, you know, we've got these little shanty towns and it's just like you know, corrugated tin and to see a tank, you know, real, real heavy ordnance tank cannon um, splash down uh, because it hit like a civilian or because it hit some, some corrugated tin and have the same effect as hitting like a massive slab of concrete. So there were, there were all of these uh, kind of small additions to the design that came over time just through the process of building this thing out that weren't, you know, in retrospect are extraordinarily obvious. But when you're building out this new type of game from scratch, we didn't, you just had to learn it by by feeling your way through. Yeah, that's the, that's the beauty of game development, apparently. The next question is um, why you're very powerful as a player, as a character, and as a mech, what have you. You're far from invulnerable. How do you believe Brigador communicates this to the player? Uh, we do it by killing you real fast. <laughs> uh, if you if you're too cavalier, like that was that was actually a big issue with the game, uh, and why we we did we had a lot of trouble with the initial launch was. Um, when Brigador launched in 2016, we'd already toned down the difficulty significantly based on feedback from PAX. And even that is something we've continued to tone down over time. We still, we still have like full psycho for some people. Um, but the, it's, I, honestly, part of the problem is I think I don't I don't think we actually do the best of communicating it. Um, but the the fact that you're there's no disparity between player vehicles and enemy vehicles. Like you'll you'll see this a lot of we, so we we created a pool of vehicles across three factions, and the player vehicles are all drawn from the same pool of that total unit set. So you can actually if you're piloting a, a Toro heavy mech, you could be fighting other Toros. Uh, and there, there's still a power disparity there. We actually did experiment at one point with, with having almost no difference in the, the hit point and damage values. And that was, that was exciting, uh, but a very different game and one which I, I would be interested to make, but I, but I think would, would be for much a much more niche audience, yes. a much more yeah. simulationist-style audience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was the, having, having the shared visual language across the factions and the, and the vehicles, um, and, and also just you, you just learn by doing fairly quickly. Like we, we have um, uh, the, the fact that even environment explosives can be quite deadly um and we we just we try to convey early on that it's you know you you can be uh you know you, you can go fast and furious and and blow everything up but you're going to need to be judicious with all of your abilities to to kind of compensate for the attention that you draw um i don't know i, I that's uh, I, I, I'm going to cut it off there because I, I feel like I'm going to be fumbling around this answer for the next 40 minutes. Uh, yeah, it's just, I think, um, basically, for me, uh, if, you, if I may sort of mm -hmm. throw this back at you, is, it's consequences of your actions. 
it basically Brigador teaches you look oh yeah go on go on try be Rambo oh you're dead see don't do that <laughs> you know you can try and ram and yell I've become war no no you're no 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 you're not <laughs> so, you know just just rein it in right rein it in speaking of reining it in Actually, it's not speaking. It's no, there's no segue at all. Why are shields replenished and not the health of the machine? I know why, but I'd like you to explain. Hmm. Um, so this for the, the audience, the, what happens is you, when you shoot vehicles, certain vehicles, they let go of shiny blue orbs, and you pick those up, and your shield gets replenished, but not your health. So please explain why that is. Well, how did that come about, I should say? Right. So the, the, the short answer to that is we we knew we wanted to have two different health pools. And for the breadth of the weapons that we were making, I mean, Br- Brigador has around 50 guns in it. Yeah. Um, for the breadth of the, of the weapons we were making, we needed... There needs to be reasons why those weapons are different, right? Having having a bunch of bunch of the same guns in the same slot that are just slight variations on rate rate of fire. That, I mean, there are times when that is appropriate, but for what we were trying to build, and also the the variation within the game world, um, we we needed to have that differentiation of of damage type. Um, so so generally speaking. Lasers are good against shield, bad against armor. Ballistics are good against armor, bad against shields. And then um, we have a third. So there's hull, shields, and environment. And so certain weapons are, you know, okay damage across the board, but don't have a penalty against anything. And, you know, and then certain weapons are like, okay, this thing will annihilate shields, but it's very weak against environment or hull. And that way... Have, having that kind of rock, paper, scissors aspect to it allowed us to give the player more specificity and more choices in their loadouts and how they understand how they're going to play the game and also how they want to, you know, what what what, what style of, of play are you enfranchising, right? Um, and so, so originally it was just born of we need gun variety and also we were thinking pretty early on that we, we needed shields to give a reason for why the player vehicle could be as hardy as it was. Um, and shields, shields in general, just from a, a thematic and um, uh, storytelling standpoint, um, with, with, with modern arms and armor, our offensive capability has greatly outstripped our defensive capability. Um, for you know, like jets now, pe- people don't you don't you don't have dogfights anymore. People shoot missiles at each other from miles away, and like that's that's how you fight. Um, and so the for me having the the shields was was a big part of like in order to have a reason for these kind of knife fights to happen. Uh, and also for more extended engagements, uh, which which could be much more dramatic as well, um, you needed something like shields in order to increase 
the survivability of a lot of these vehicles so that we, we, we could, we had the palette, we had the, the room to play with that, that drama. Um, and also because in game, the idea of a tank, like, you know, gluing on extra strips of armor in the middle of combat just irked me to, to no end. And with, with pick up a bull, like, you know, vampire cabling shields from your downed enemies, that, that was at least tolerable. Right. Uh, and yeah, so so there's it it I I know it's kind of odd to to be making gameplay decisions or at least having gameplay decisions informed by some lore you've been writing, but right. but that's that's kind of what I was talking about earlier of of trying to build all of this stuff of a piece, and you know I, I one of the best times I had in during Brigros development was was like I don't know that much about tanks right now, so I spent almost a month reading about armor, uh, loadouts, weaponry, like the sizes of the guns, what are the capabilities, what are the drawbacks, uh, and just, just doing a, a deep dive on all this stuff, different types of armor types. Um, and with that, coming out of that research that, that, that gave me a, a, a context for building this stuff out and for uh, aligning the stories we were telling as well as the gameplay in a way that, that all fit together. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I actually found it to be quite refreshing to see it, to have it so that, wait, well, how can you pick up bits of, you know, another mech you just blew up and say, oh, look, your health's gone up. That makes no sense. What are you going to do? Go outside and take the bits you just <laughs> get out of the <laughs> mech and start preparing on the field can you stop shooting for a moment just get yeah. my health back just hang on the, well, the, the other thing i wanted to say is is from a purely gameplay standpoint um it was early on we were still fiddling a lot with with how long of a run uh you would have in the game now all the campaign missions are all single single level just because we realized that is much more aligned to the average play length mm -hmm. for people um we have these really long, like two hour long runs you can do. And that was those longer, more roguelike type runs were part of that original separation of shields and armor and why armor couldn't be repaired is this idea of, okay, you could pick a vehicle that's maybe better stats overall, but has less armor such that you're, you know, you're more powerful, but your room for error is that that margin is is much smaller? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and to give that that player drama where anytime that armor gets planked away, you get that that kind of exhaling panic, um, especially if it is a longer run or uh, a level that you're this very difficult and you're heavily invested in, and and you're you're sitting there with you know fifteen hull left and maybe twenty shielding, and it's like that. There's a, a uh, a, a drama that can happen there that that uh, I, th I think wouldn't quite get with just a single health pool that's that can be fully replenished. Yeah, drama. You say excellent way to describe it. It wouldn't be there. The, the sense of anxiety and risk reward would vanish. Last thing, and this is to do with the AI or how they how they interact with the player. Eventually, there's an alarm system. People go, oh, look, here here it comes. I'll go running off. 
and raise an alarm, and then all of a sudden you get monstered by half the level of, 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 of <laughs> things. How is this developed, and how sensitive is it? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> you're So I'm, I'm glad you're asking about it, because this is something we banged our head against for over two years. Right. Um, out, out Besides the, the reticles and depth-based aiming, uh, the alarm system is probably the most worked-over mechanic in Brigador. Um, we had... So the, 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 the impetus for it was... Um, again, based, based around... You know, we didn't necessarily want to make a stealth game, but we wanted to enfranchise clever, skilled play. Uh, and also, I I didn't like the idea. I didn't want to enfranchise unfun gameplay. So, uh, not, not to say that kiting is inherently unfun, but something we, we tried to be very sensitive to uh, with Brigador is to make sure that optimal play was also fun play. And if, if it was possible to just uh, pull one unit at a time over and over again and just slowly work your way through the whole map, I mean, it is still possible to do that, but it's certainly not optimal play. Uh, and... Uh, one of the things we did was so there's there's an explicit alarm state where so there's spotters in the game, and if they maintain visual contact with you for long enough or you damage them, they will begin a countdown to do uh, to sound the alarm. When the alarm happens, uh, there's these things called panic walls which are retracted into the ground. So there, there's the level geometry changes when an alarm is sounded, and AI units can path through panic walls, the walls will retract for any, uh, you know, any friendly unit. But for the player, those walls will always be up. Now, you, you know, you can sneak through those if you're tagging along with someone else going through those gates, but, that's, you know, side note. Um, so it was having an alarm happen. It gives a, it, it's a dynamic state change where the, the level geometry changes. And on top of that, it's just a giant, aggro pull that happens where now depending on the map size it could be a third or even a majority of the map that's now all aggroing directly to your location um and that and that that can that's that's another pivot point where it's from a gameplay standpoint it's having a little bit of drama so that oh someone's spotting me i gotta take that unit out before they sound the alarm or else i'm you know, I'm dead meat. Um, but the... So, this, I mean, this mechanic, the, the core idea was to, to keep the player from from engaging in just not fun gameplay. And also, because logically for me, it was like, okay, if there's tanks fighting each other in this district, uh, someone's going to figure that out, right? Yeah, yeah. There, there needs to be 
a natural evolution of the battlefield, especially since we already had a destructible battlefield, mm-hmm. which would emphasize it even more so. Um, yeah. And that, that's where sound became a really important. Every gun has a sound uh, radius for when it fires and for when its projectile impacts. Uh, and all enemy units have, some of them are spotters, so they have that explicit aggro and the alarm state. But then all units also have a, a mini aggro where if they're maintaining eye contact or you know visual contact with the player, mm. every at, a, at like every two seconds they'll pulse a much smaller radius around them, and it's like radioing their buddies to like, hey, I need help. Right. Uh, right. And so it was. I mean, this 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 took so many iterations. Uh, at, at one point, every unit was a spotter. Oh god! And no one was hostile. So that was a trade-off: is that no one was overtly hostile until you either shot at them or until the alarm was sounded. The idea being that it was like friend or foe recognition. You know that you're, you know, the, you're the aggressor. But especially when, you know, early on when we only had one faction. You know, you look the same as the other vehicles, and you're you're the turncoat. So there was this element of surprise uh, to it, and so it, it it enfranchised much more of like a reconnaissance style gameplay in the level, yeah. and setting ambushes and and trying to immediately take out a group as as completely as possible. Yeah, because when that happened, if someone sounded the alarm, what happened is that it pulsed the entire level. And whenever anyone could see you, it would update a smaller pulse, for, but but also still very large. So so long as someone was maintaining visual contact with you, everyone was aggroing to your position. And again, that's that's one of those kind of road not traveled for Brigador because it was that was that's a very different game. And I think that still could have been a very fun game and a very interesting game, but it's not what we ended up making for myriad reasons but it's not it's not because that would have been a bad game it's just there's, there's a lot of these design decisions that uh are, are a culmination of of just where you were at the time and and the problems you're trying to figure out at that juncture that inform the game you end up making and that's that's been a very interesting thing for me is yes we've only made one game we're about halfway through shipping our second one but uh even without really changing the engine at all, only making some minor tweaks, we we could make several very very different feeling games out of the same bones, uh, just by rearranging some things. And so that's that's one of the challenges from a design standpoint. Is at some you know some point in development, you have to close off that possibility space. Um, and the way we handled aggro. And spotting was a huge part of that because you can just change that one factor and it'll, it'll totally rejigger how, how the game plays. Um, so, I don't know, it's for better or worse, the Brigadier you play now is the one we ended up with. Uh, and we're, you know, we're going to be tinkering with it some more for our next game. But um, that's just, that's, that's, that's how it went. Thank you for the detailed answer, which I was expected because... I thought it was ingenious because, again, it added another layer of complexity and tactics that the player had to engage in as they as they staggered around these cities, these dark cities that you were busy destroying because of reasons which you haven't got into. Because that's that's a whole thing I want people to discover. I don't want to to, to delve into that. It's quite amusing how it's all written from a certain point of view. 
<laughs> but um, Hugh, it's been fantastic having you on, being given such wonderful and detailed, mm. detailed answers to to uh, the, the questions I've presented to you. Um, Brigadoy's out. It's been out for a little while. Uh, it's by Stella Jockeys, and it's out on Windows, PC, Mac, and Linux. And could you tell us a little bit about Welsh? What was the follow-up title to it? Yeah, so we, we haven't officially announced anything yet, but no. it'll be coming soon. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I can, I'll can. i give you the scoop. So uh, around this time next year, we'll be releasing uh, a direct follow-up called Brigador Killers. Um, and the... The broad strokes of it are, are that we're refining the Brigador gameplay. Right. Um, just because now now that we've made Brigador, we understand mm-hmm. what are its strengths and weaknesses, and we're just going to really dial that in uh, on the next game. Cool. And then from a thematic standpoint, uh, we're flipping the table, so you are you are playing as people hunting the Brigadors, and. Uh, the game itself is is far more story oriented. We're working with a very talented artist named Simon Roy, who uh, is illustrating interstitial panels between each mission. And so you've got a colorful cast of characters who you follow through this very arduous journey. Because um, that was one of the strongest feedback we, that we got from Brigador is, is that you know, I like the game. Uh, I like these stories. I like the the background to everything, but I, I I want I want an explicit narrative. I want a couple characters or like this this perspective that I can trace through the whole series of events. So that's that's probably the biggest change though that we're making for for the next game. So we'll we'll be officially announcing it soon, and um, we'll definitely be showing it at uh, PAX West in September. Uh, and otherwise, yeah, we've got. Uh, you know, we've got a, a newsletter on stellarjockeys.com if people are curious. Uh, and then we also have the Discord. All, the, all that stuff's up on our website, stellarjockeys.com. So. Okay, excellent. Okay. Well, I'll be at PAX West as well, so we can... We can yeah, we can catch up. Yeah, we'll catch up. So in the meantime, Hugh, it's been fantastic having you on, as I said. And you're more than welcome to come back. And when uh, uh, Bigger Door Killers is out, we can uh, reconvene and have this conversation again, only this time, about that game. That'd be great. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Chris.
guards unbroken in front of the eastern gate of District HQ. Blake's machine was a vision from the seventh hell, blackened and scarred, its feet covered in mashed body parts and mud. Kitty thought, in that moment of stillness after the combat, that Steady Ed was absolutely terrifying. Attention, she boomed, her loudspeaker still clearly operational. We are soldiers from Sector 78, loyal to the NPA, and we are expected. Open the gate. 